Hey, uh, I'm excited about today. I hope you have come to see Jesus today. He is the focus of our faith, and today he leads us in a master class of kindness. Those of you who have been with us for uh, this series on 2 Peter chapter 1 know that we've spent quite a bit of time so far in a number of qualities, and, and they've started off by uh, bringing us, uh, producing in us actually a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as we've added to our faith uh, this quality of virtue or excellence or goodness in our faith, uh, we've added to it the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And both of those, all of those are designed to enable us to produce the character of Christ in us. They're so foundational. We have to start there. But we've also added some qualities that protect us in the world today. So we're getting pr production of the life of Christ in us, but we're also learning to be protected in this world in which we live, which is contrary to the desires of God. It's owned by Satan, and it's a hostile world to Christian faith. But we've been taught to have self-control and, and perseverance. And today we come to a, a point in our um, development of faith where we've added godliness, and, and we're now at a point of ready to be able to project into our world the life of God. So we've obtained the life of God, we're learning to protect it, and now we are projecting it into our world in these, these final two qualities. Both of them have a lot to do with love, which is natural because it's the life of God. But today Peter is going to say to us, I want you to add another quality. It's the seventh of eight. And it's this quality of brotherly affection or kindness. It's familial affection and a compassion and care. And uh, it's, it's this natural outworking of that mountaintop vista of godliness, which is loving God, right, and caring about God's people. And so now we get down into the granular parts of what does that mean for us in the body of Christ, in our connections with people, and in the world itself. So Peter is saying to us, these two kinds of love should literally be exploding out of our lives, this brotherly, sisterly kind of affection, and next week, agape love, God's love itself. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Peter 1, and we're in verses 5 through 7 today. So verses 5 through 7, I'm using the ESV uh, for this morning. And Peter writes to us, and he says, for this very reason, and we all know the reasons that have been given to us in the first four verses, he says, make every effort, effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue, excellence, goodness, and to virtue, knowledge, intimacy with Jesus Christ, and to knowledge, self-control. Now we're moving into the world. We have to be self-controlled in this environment in which we live, um, and, and steadfastness or perseverance, and add to that godliness and we looked at that last week but then he says these last two qualities and to godliness brotherly affection and agape love so let's let's start off and ask ourselves what is brotherly kindness or affection and it, it might seem a little confusing because these last two qualities have a lot to do with love so how are they different how is brotherly kindness different than agape love what does god want us to know here What's so fascinating for us that when God led Peter to pick the Greek words for his letter, we know it's inspired by God. He was led by the Spirit of God to write what he wrote. God had him choose a word that really is very familiar to us, to all of us. And in the English, you would translate Peter's word, Philadelphia. How many of you have ever been to Philadelphia? How many of you like a Philly cheesesteak? 
all right? Oh, yeah. We were on a layover going to uh, a mission trip. We stopped in Philadelphia, and we had like two hours, and we decided we are getting Philly cheesesteaks. And we rented a car from the uh, airport and drove uh, to Pat's King of Steaks on East Pasiunk Avenue. Got our Philly cheesesteak and headed back to the airport. So when you think of Philadelphia, you might think of that. Or you might think, well, that's, that's the cradle of American liberty. There's the Betsy Ross house there. There's the Liberty Bell. There's uh, Valley Forge nearby. And you'd be right. But I think what most of us think about when we hear the word Philadelphia is that it is the city of brotherly love. So this is our English word that Peter originated in Greek. The Greek word is actually very interesting. It's a mashup of two Greek words that help us understand and actually dig a little deeper into the meaning. So we're going to put it up on the screen for you. The word Philadelphia is really, in, in the Greek, a breakdown of two words. One is phileo, and that's simply an action. It's an action of kindness, uh, a feeling of affection or fondness. It's a, a delight in something. So it's this action, but then they add this word Adelphia, which refers to a person, and it's a very interesting type of person. It's not somebody that we are totally unaware of. This is someone with whom we have a connection of some kind. So it can be a family connection, right? It can be a cousin or a brother or a sister, or a grandparent, a child, a grandchild, but there's this family connection, or it can be even a connection with a, a hobby, uh, something that we enjoy doing with other people of biking or building Legos or archery or video games or hiking. But there's a connection there in the relationship. It could even be through a profession. If you're a medical individual and you work with other medical professionals, you have this Adelphia, you have this connection. So it's by interest or by calling, and it's applied to us most of all, the church. We have this connection through the person of Jesus Christ. So when Peter writes this word, he's talking about being kind to, to someone who's connected to us in some way by something that we have in common. Uh, for instance, there was a guy named Bill Moore, I read about him this week, who was finishing shopping at Target. And he had gone in to buy just one or two things. He had finished his shopping. He's waiting in line at the checkout counter. And ahead of him is an older gentleman who has a lawn chair. And, and so he gets, the guy with the lawn chair gets up to the clerk, this young uh, female clerk, and he says, young lady, do you think that, that this chair will look good on my lawn? And she says, oh, yes, sir, I, I'm sure that it will. Well, young lady, do you think it will look so good that someone will take it? Oh, no, sir, no, no, I don't think that would look that good, sir. No, of course not. Good, then I'll buy it. And he bought the lawn chair, and he's walking out. Bill stepped up to the clerk, and he says, that was a funny old fellow. And she goes, well, not really. It was my dad. <laughs> I borrowed his lawn chair last year, and I didn't return it. He was just being kind. <laughs> so <laughs> you never know what you're going to see at Target. That's brotherly kindness. It's this sense of I'm not going to embarrass a person. I'm not going to call them out, even though they really deserve it. I'm just going to treat them with kindness. And that's what he was doing for this young lady, his daughter. So it's a kindness to others that is related to them because we have this, this mutual tie, this thing that says we should have a good relationship with them. And we can add this to our faith because God, God knows that we need more of this in our, in our churches and in our world today. This is why it's in the list. 
There's a couple things we notice about it. Number one, if you look at some other scriptures, you notice that this brotherly affection is unselfish. Take a look at uh, Romans 12.10, which tells us this. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Those are connected. Love one another with this kind of brotherly affection and, and go to an effort to lift them up, to um, let them be honored in some way, to be encouraged. And so the affection we're to have for others um, is uh, connecting us to them in all of life's different settings. We lift them up, we bless them, rather than criticize them or degrade them or discourage them. I read this week of a gal who was uh, between flights in an airport, and she went into the uh, Hudson store to buy, you know, the little packets of of, uh, cookies, Oreo cookies. There's four to a pack. You pay about $14 for them, you know? (laughs) And, and so she thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these with me, get to my seat, get my Kindle out, and do some reading. And so she, she found a seat near her gate, pulled out her Kindle, began reading. And gradually, she became aware of this rustling sound next to her. And she looked to her right, and there's a nicely dressed man in one seat over. And he has opened this container of Oreo cookies, and he's serving himself. And um, she didn't want to make a scene, so she leans over and takes one of the cookies, Right? And she begins to, to chew on it, and, and a minute or two passed, and she hears more rustling. There's the guy taking another cookie. And she's, she's thinking to herself, what is he doing? There's just one cookie left. And then to add injury to insult, he takes the last cookie, breaks it in half, and scoots half of it toward her. <laughs> he smiles at her, stands up, and leaves. And, and she's just... She's just fuming inside. What does he think he's doing? She opens her handbag to take out her phone to take a picture of the thief, and as she does, she noticed an unopened container of Oreo cookies. (laughs) And she suddenly realized he wasn't taking her cookies. She was taking his. And out of kindness to her, Because they have this thing in common. They're fellow travelers. They're both probably tired. They're both sugar-deprived. You know, he says, sure, let her have some cookies. I'll even share the last one with her. So brotherly kindness is really unselfish behavior. It lifts others up instead of tearing them down. We also find in Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 1, this statement. It says, let brotherly love continue. Now, we're commanded that because sometimes we are tempted to discontinue brotherly kindness if we are offended, if we are hurt in a relationship, if we feel this is not equitable, I I need to pull back and and hold on to my compassion and care. So in other words, brotherly kindness keeps on being affectionate. It doesn't let anything bring it to a halt in our relationships with people we know. And we know this because there's another passage by Paul in 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10, where he repeats the same thing. Notice this. He says, now concerning brotherly love. So our ears should go up. Our radar should be out. Oh, he's talking about the same thing. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But, he says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Hit the gas pedal. Let this quality gain steam in your life. Do it more and more. Keep fueling the fires of care and compassion for other people around you. And then the question, I think, becomes, well, how do we do this? 
How can I do this in my life? How can I be more kind toward the people around me with whom I have something in common? In church, the people around us this morning, in our world who desperately need this quality. How do we do this? Well, this is where Jesus' master class on kindness comes in. And he says, number one, we learn how to be affectionate with others from God's examples. Look back at 1 Thessalonians 4.9. We had it on the screen just a minute ago. I'll read it for you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God how to love one another. God has taught us this in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we look at a couple of examples in his life, we begin to unearth some of the qualities that come out of kindness that that Jesus has modeled for us and demonstrates how to do it. One of my favorite is in John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. So if you would hold your place in 2 Peter, we'll also have it on the screen for you if you want to just stay in 2 Peter. But John 11 is this amazing story of brotherly affection and kindness. So I want to read it for us this morning, and then we're going to look at one other aspect of Jesus's master class, and then wrap it up with some concluding thoughts. So you see in verse 1, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. It was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. And so naturally, the sisters sent to Jesus, and they said to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a home that was close to Jerusalem, literally three miles away. Jesus and his disciples had spent many, many overnights there, amazing Mediterranean meals. And, And they had provided that food and shelter for all of the disciples and Jesus. And and Lazarus, well, Lazarus and Jesus were, were really best friends in many ways. And so Mary and Martha write to Jesus through a, through a messenger, and they're essentially saying to Jesus, Lord, the one that you slap on the back with delight after he's told an especially good joke to you, he's not doing well. Lord, the one that you tease about his hat hair first thing in the morning, he's under the weather. Lord, the one that you've gone on long, long walks with to talk about his business ventures and, and about that cute Jewish girl down the street that he likes, he's getting worse. Lord, the one you have a close and enduring friendship with, that one is sick. In fact, he is fading quickly. Come quickly. So you would think, wouldn't you, that this realization that his good buddy is on death's door would spur Jesus to act with brotherly kindness and sprint to Bethany. Now, it was a 55-mile trip from where he was at. But you would think he would take time to get there as quickly as he could. But notice Jesus' intriguing comment to the messenger and to his followers. You see it in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Notice verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that seem counterintuitive? Does that seem unkind, unloving? Jesus loved these close friends, but he was doing nothing about it. 
He was staying right where he was. And we have to ask the question, why? How was that the loving or kind-hearted thing to do? And it was because as the Son of God, and we see it in the text, he knew the end result would not be death but resurrection life. He was looking beyond the moment to what would be the outcome if he waited. He knew his, his uh, delay would bring an even clearer demonstration of kind-hearted love and what it really looked like. And so he waits. He knew the Father would get the glory by his waiting. And it wouldn't do any harm to his friends in the end. He knew that. It would give them a temporary sorrow, but in the end they would see the greatness of God. So notice in verse 7. Then finally, after he said this to the disciples, he said, let's go to Judea again. And, and the disciples begin to pull back a little bit. They said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the, the light is not in him. And he's saying to them, basically, guys, you're with me, the light of the world. We're not going to stumble. We're not going to fall. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I love the subtlety of that. The disciples said to him, well, oh Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. He's going to get better. And Jesus who had spoken of his death. But Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant merely taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, great, let's go with him that we can die too. Real positive guy. And, and you see what's happening here. They're confused by his behavior. They thought Jesus maybe had forgotten about that recent stoning attempt, and so they're trying to bring it back into his uh, memory. Uh, you got to be safe. Uh, they thought that Jesus somehow knew that Lazarus was feeling better and resting so we could pause and, and not go right away. And then when it was clear that Lazarus had died, they went with resignation, fearing the worst. Jesus had teed the ball up for them, and they were swinging and missing. Look at verse 17. And this is where we begin to get into the aha moment of this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, right? It's 55 miles. It takes two days to get to Jesus. He waited two days before he went back. He's been dead four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, hence the disciples' concern for safety. And many of the Jews, many of the Jews from Jerusalem had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And listen to what Martha says to him. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a guilty statement? Guilt-inducing? Man, you should have been here. If you had, he'd, he'd still be here among us. But she says, even now, I know. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's a great statement of faith. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, oh, I know, I know, he's going to rise again in the res resurrection on the last day. But notice Jesus says to her, and here's the aha moment that begins for her and the disciples. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? Amen. And she said to him, yes. Lord, I, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Ah, 
Now she's beginning to understand. And this is the key lesson I think Jesus wanted her and us to learn by his actions on that day. As we think about kindness, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In other words, folks, he's not just the source of them. He's the substance of them. He's not just a path to them. He is the presence of them. And what he's saying to her and us is, look, if I am present, anything in life or death is possible. If I'm here, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, verse 28 says, when she had heard this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who are with Mary in the house, consoling her, see Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. But when Mary came to Jesus where he was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, and this sounds reminiscent, doesn't it? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, before you think that is simply feeling empathy with them, we need to understand what Peter's writing and what what is being written in the gospel here. Verse uh, 38. No, let's go back just a little bit. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. Had to memorize it as a four-year-old. Jesus wept. Right? I got credit for it, though. It's a Bible verse. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, look how he loved him. But some, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And then again, Jesus, deeply moved, comes to the tomb. And it's a cave with a stone lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. If you're reading the King James, it says, Lord, he stinketh. He stinketh. He's been dead for four days. When Jesus arrives, everyone is upset. Martha, you should have been here. We were counting on you. Mary, if you'd been here, we'd still have a brother. The mourners, didn't Jesus have unlimited power? I mean, he could heal the blind. Can't he keep Lazarus from dying? And as Jesus listened to them, he had two strong emotions. And this is where we have the master class on kindness. Notice, first of all, it says in verse 33, he is deeply moved and troubled in spirit. In the Greek, it literally reads, his spirit snorted. He was moved with anger. He felt agitated. He was displeased. And internally, this thought process must have been going on as his spirit snorts this, these feelings. Of course he cared. Of course he was powerful over death. Their comments, their reactions to his late tri uh, arrival troubled him. And the natural reaction would have been to say something like, well, fine then. If you think it wasn't important to me, if you think I'm too weak to help, I'm heading back 55 miles to Bethabara, where I was before this whole hellabaloo started. And folks, there are times in our relationships where people don't understand us. And they accuse unjustly of how we thought or felt. And there's a natural human tendency to respond in anger or displeasure or frustration. 
and kind of snort all over them. They don't understand me. What's wrong with them? And kindness at that point typically goes out the window. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. Here's his second response. He offers them brotherly affection. He expresses a deep compassion, a care for them. He, he weeps with them and for them in their disbelief and grief. I don't want you to miss this. Phileo love cares enough to be around when tough times hit, even if we are uncomfortable in the midst of that. So when people are in distress, when a neighbor's roof is leaking and it needs fixing, when a, baby, a, a friend's a baby needs sitting, when a daughter's cat gets lost, when, uh, when a neighbor's washing machine goes out, when their, their car breaks down and they need a loner, phileo love cries with them in the moment when they have these problems. And then it steps in to assist them, to love them, to care for them, to help them where it hurts the most. And notice how in verse 40 Jesus does this as he expresses this brotherly affection. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And that's past tense. His prayer life was ongoing. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This prayer is for them. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus says to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you see that first lesson in the master class of kindness? There may be moments where we just feel agitated with others around us, and God says, but brotherly kindness steps into that and helps. Just using what God has given you. Jesus brought his tools to bear on this individual and said, let me help. The second lesson in the master class is through his death. And we sang about it this morning. There's another passage I want you to look at, and that's Titus 3. And it drives this, home, this point home powerfully. Listen to this. Titus uh, is uh, reading Paul's letter to him, and, and he hears, Remind them, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For, he says, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, it sounds a lot like our world today. This is why this kindness needs to be present with those we have things in connection with. But notice verse 4. But... When the goodness and loving kindness, that's the same word here, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul writes to Titus, and he says, look, the loving kindness of God is what made 
and continues to make the difference for you and I in our lives and relationships. This is intended to be a practical reality for us. And he says, hey, it's only because of God's loving kindness that we're changed from people who were hell-bent to heaven-sent. It's only because of God's loving kindness. It's only because God had feelings of affection and kindness toward us that he saved us from the wrath to come and the, the frustrations and failures of our flesh. And it's only because of God's goodness that we're washed clean, that we are renewed, we are rebooted within by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's only because of God's kindness expressed to you and I at the cross. And I want you to notice verse 3 again. We'll put it back up on the screen. He says, for once... Somewhere in your past and somewhere in my past, we were foolish. In other words, we didn't have a thought about God. We were disobedient. All of us had at least one sin on our rap sheet before God. A lie we had told, an envy harbored, a lust explored, a slander expressed. We all had at least one on our rap sheet. And so we were disobedient. He says we were led astray. We took the wrong path. We led, followed our own evil desires. He says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We couldn't escape the habitual aspect of them. We were passing our days in evil. Wow. Envy. Hatred. You know, that's not something I like to admit. I don't know about you guys. I don't like to look at that list and go, boy, that was me. But it's been true of all of us at some point in our experience. I needed and you needed someone to come along and change the course of our lives. And folks, that's why we're here this morning. Because Jesus did that for us. Let me tell you three ways he saved you and I. Number one, and we'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along. He saved us, and you notice this in verse 5 of, of this passage. He saved us from the righteous judgment of God on our past wrong actions. He says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we were such great people, but according to his own mercy. Jesus held back from us the things that we deserved, so richly deserved, the outcome of our actions. He, he held them back and took the punishment himself. And so he saved us from the righteous judgment of God. Number two, he saved us to a new way of life. Look at verse 5 and 6. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He, he washed us. He renewed us by the internal Holy Spirit. He bleached all of our past sins away, all of the impurities. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Thirdly, he saved us to become heirs of a new hope. He says he saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Did you guys know you have an inheritance waiting? We do. It's probably not a rich uncle here in this life. Wouldn't that be nice? Right? But it is Jesus Christ himself who has made us a co-heir of eternal glory, eternal hope, eternal life. So he wasn't, he wasn't content to just wipe away all your past sins and mine. He wasn't content with that. He wasn't content to merely create within us a new capacity for doing the right thing. God saved us to give us the certainty of a future of an unending perfect life, a life in, in which uh, we're heirs of, of God's new world and, and his new life. And folks, all of that is because of God's loving kindness to us. So here's, here's two concluding applications for this part of it. 
if we're going to look at the master class, we're going to say, what are, we, what are we learning? Well, number one, God didn't expect you and I to be perfect before he was kind to us. Can I hear an amen to that? Oh, gosh, yes. God didn't wait for Doug Baker to be a perfect, indi- he would be waiting a long time for me to be perfect. He didn't wait for that. He didn't wait for me to have the perfect perception of who he truly is or the perfect behavior toward him. He acted in kindness toward me because he loved me. And he didn't demand that I be thoughtful and caring and a wonderful person before him in my own actions before he showed me his affections. He didn't wait for all that. And folks, neither should we wait for that for the people who are in the circle of our life. Do not wait for others to be perfect around you. They're not going to be. Don't wait for them to have the perfect perception of who you are. We're constantly learning about each other. We're never going to understand everything. Lisa and I tell each other, we are in the University of Lisa and the University of Doug. We're still learning about each other after 41 years of marriage. Don't wait for them to be perfect. Don't wait for them to be thoughtful, them to be caring. You take the first step. So that was number one. Secondly, he gave people the perfect kind of help based on what God had equipped him to do. He stepped up and he said, God has made me the son of God and and I am that person, third person of the Trinity. I am going to help solve these needs in the way that God has equipped me to do. And he lavished his love and his kindness on us and he gives us the Holy Spirit and he addresses all of our problems and needs while we are still helpless. And he says to us, go do the same. Take the gifts that God has given you, and they're all different, and use those gifts in the lives of others however God has gifted you to do that. Don't go halfway. Don't just say, I've I've done enough for today. Go above and beyond helping others with the needs that they have in their lives. And here's what happens. There are two things that come out of this. We're going to conclude with this. When we practice this kind of brotherly kindness with others, what happens? Well, two things, two amazing things. It sets the stage for deeper love relationships. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, ladies, you've already looked at this, but he puts the cookies on the lower shelf, and he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, agape love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, when we act in kindness rather than anger or frustration, we are preparing that relationship to go deeper. As we obey God's love, as it sanctifies us and, and prepares us to be kind and loving from the heart, that relationship is prepared to be richer. A seminary friend of mine who came out of a pretty uh, interesting family life growing up told me about an argument his dad and mom had had one time. And as I was studying this passage this week, it came back to mind. And, and he said in the middle of one particular argument, his dad jumps up from the table, grabs two pieces of paper, throws them on the table, and says to his wife, okay, let's make a list of everything we don't like about each other. And the mom grabbed the the pencil and began writing. And this friend of mine said he was standing there staring like, oh, dear Lord, this is not going to end well. And, And the dad wasn't writing. He was staring at his wife. And when she stopped writing, he started writing. And then she was looking at him, and then she started writing again, and he stopped writing, and he just watched her. And she would stop, and he would write again. And this went on for several minutes, and finally, he said, okay, okay, let's exchange papers. So they slid papers across the table, 
And the moment his wife glanced at her husband's list, she said, give me my paperback. <laughs> because there on his list, every time she had started writing, he wrote down, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, amazing, right? I don't think I would be that quick to do that. But he's, he's saying to himself, I am going to be loving, kind, and compassionate. Even though there are offenses here, I want this relationship to go deeper. And it did because of that act. So as we practice kindness, it sets the stage for a deeper love relationship. But I love this last point most of all, and that is it builds a strong church. So folks, as we think about this transition that we're in, as we contemplate, how do we make this shift forward with all of our thoughts and possible concerns about it? I think this is where Jesus would say to us, oh, this is a good place to begin. This is where your steps need to go. Have that kind of brotherly kindness in your church because it builds a strong church. Folks, nothing is more attractive to people who visit a church than this kindness, than to see the smiling eyes and the, the side hugs and the, the warm, genuine interest in each other. How are you doing today? Oh, that's good. I'm so glad to hear that. Or if it's bad, I'm so sorry. What can I do to help? And this ongoing, genuine concern for the well-being of others, this kind of kindness makes a huge difference. In fact, it's so interesting to me that this same word phileo is used in the New Testament, commonly translated as kiss. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus said to him, Judas, with a philomata, a kiss of kindness and compassion, do you betray the Son of Man? My um, high school pastor, I remember him preaching on this idea of phileo, love, and, and he talked about how in the New Testament, it's translated, greet each other with a holy kiss. And as a young teen, I thought to myself, now that's a theological truth I can get a hold of, right? <laughs> I forgot about the holy part. Greet each other with a holy kiss, with a kiss that is set apart that says, I have affection for you. So the truth is, brotherly kindness or affection, this thing we're talking about, this deep family concern for others, meshes God's people together with arms of love that act to meet real needs. So if you say to me, Pastor Doug, how do we make this transition? I think God's response in mind would be, love each other. Be brotherly kind, sisterly kind toward each other. Have this quality in your life. Because we do have a season of growth, a season of service coming up. We have a new lead pastor who at some point is going to join us. And by the way, he won't be perfect. I wear a size 10 shoe, I have no idea what size shoe he wears, right? He, and folks, he's going to make mistakes. We all do. Will we love him in a brotherly, sisterly kind of way? Will we welcome his family? Will we say to him, we're so glad you're here because God is doing this next new thing among us? This is what God desires for us and to be in our world today. So I'd like to invite the worship team to join us back on the stage and simply end with a simple application. Is this a quality that, that you want to practice more this week? And if it is, if you say to yourself, yeah, in my, my marriage, I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more of that with my brother or my sister. It's been a difficult time during this season of life. Uh, I'd like to see more of that with my kids or my own parents a co-worker, whatever people you have things in common with. Where do you start? 
Well, we go back to the master class of Jesus. We look at how he did it and the outcome of his death on our behalf. And we say to ourselves, this is the quality that will fill in the cracks and soften the frustrations we all feel in those moments. And this is the quality that prepares us for deeper, deeper levels of love among ourselves. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, this passage in John, for Jesus' example. Thank you for the command that you give us to do this more and more. And Father, if we're here today and thinking, wow, I do need more of that, God, would you speak into our hearts? You're the ultimate teacher. Would you remind us how Jesus did it? Would you remind us how the Holy Spirit who dwells within us refreshes us and renews us to do that? And how his own giftedness to us is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, self-control. God, we want to be more and more like this. At Trinity, we want to be more and more like this in our world. Help us do that. And Father, as you do that, we will step back with gratitude and praise for your glory because it truly does deepen our relationships and it truly does make a stronger church. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.